This is hell. Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell. And talk about grief. There was a time, and not that long ago, that if a woman went to see the doctor because they were not feeling well, there was a really good chance the doctor, almost always a man, would diagnose his female patient as having hysteria, no matter what she had. In fact, there were pandemics of hysteria at one time in the United States, and again, not that long ago either. Back in the day, if you were diagnosed with hysteria, you were told to get some rest and wait for it to pass. In other words, the diagnosis was questionable and there was no treatment for that very questionable diagnosis. And that seemed to continue into the final decades of the 20th century, believe it or not, when regulators like the CDC were scoffing at the disorder and its effects on the public, despite evidence showing something called chronic fatigue syndrome was having a serious impact on public health in the United States, even a worse health experience than those who were experiencing AIDS, according to one study. However, as the Mayo Clinic posted, chronic fatigue is a real disorder, and worse, it's difficult to diagnose. And if it is, the cause for getting the disorder will remain unknown, all while it can last for several months. And treatment is uncertain with rest not helping and activity possibly making the symptoms even worse. Symptoms include extreme exhaustion after physical or mental exercise, problems with memory or thinking skills, dizziness that worsens with moving from lying down or sitting to standing, muscle or joint pain, and unrefreshing sleep. So, in a few minutes, we'll get introduced to chronic fatigue syndrome, or CVS, when we speak with writer, speaker, and eco-feminist Jennifer London, author of American Breakdown, Our Ailing Nation, My Body's Revolt, and The 19th Century Woman Who Brought Me Back to Life. London is the recipient of the 2019 Main Arts Fellowship for Literary Arts and the 2016 Breadloaf Roma Jaffe Foundation Scholarship in Nonfiction. She writes at the intersection of health and the environment. Her debut essay, The Butterfly Effect, won a Pushcart Prize, her very first essay. In Exposed, the Mammogram Myth and the Pink Washing of America, a piece for Orion, London revealed the politics behind the corporate-driven breast cancer awareness campaign. London's poems have been published in Sweet, Peacock Journal, Poetry Canada Review, and the Cafe Review, and she has read them live on CBC Radio. Her documentary, Sadie's Last Day, was an official selection of the Maine International Film Festival. A licensed clinical social worker and former therapist, London provides individual and group supervision to other therapists and has also taught social work online for Simmons University and the University of New England. In 2012, she was named Maine's Social Worker of the Year for her campaign to prevent cuts to Maine's Medicaid programs. According to her bio, London and her husband, the artist Frank Turek, live in a little house in Portland, Maine, where they keep several chickens, two cats, and some gloriously untamed gardens, which is absolutely adorable. Find out more about London at her website, jenniferlondon.com. London is on today's show because she was suggested to us by listener Chris Busby from The Bollard, an alternative magazine in Portland, Maine. Chris sent us an actual letter in the actual mail, which says, 
I'm writing to suggest a guest, Jennifer London, author of American Breakdown, uh, which was published this month by Harper Wave and reviewed in our May issue of The Bollard, which is enclosed. Chris adds London as she's known to friends like myself and comrade Dan Colbert, who was recently on This Is Hell to talk about his book Pretty Good House, has written a stunningly powerful memoir about her struggles with chronic fatigue syndrome, multiple chemical sensitivity, and the medical establishment that's long misunderstood, misdiagnosed, and marginalized those suffering from those afflictions. She spent decades researching the causes of these illnesses and discovered their connections to toxic chemicals and household products and furnishings, childhood trauma, and the constant stress of life under industrial capitalism. London brilliantly explains how those suffering from CFS and MCS are the proverbial canaries in a coal mine whose debilitating conditions are a warning to tell all of us that our society is indeed poisoning itself. If you have a guest suggestion that you or a guest that you would like to suggest we have on the show, you can do what Chris did, and that is actually mail us an actual letter in the actual mail to This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon Avenue, 2nd Floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. Or you can email your recommendation to chuck at thisishell.com, or you can message us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio, tweet at us at thisishellradio, or post your idea on our Discord. Or if you are a Patreon patron, message us via Patreon, patreon.com slash thisishell. However you do it, we want to hear your guest recommendations. Producing is Will Ippen. Will, what's new by you? Um, not a whole lot. Just uh, reacting not too well to the Canadian smoke in the air today. Oh, could you feel it outside? Yeah, I could smell it a little bit. It smells like campfire. The sky's a little opaque. Uh, not as bad as it is uh, on the East Coast, from what I understand. Do you have allergies, any like asthmatic or anyway? Uh, I just get seasonal allergies and kind of general, in, like a little bit of inflammation from from you know smoke sometimes. I never had any allergies until I moved to Chicago, and I was talking to my doctor about mm-hmm. that, and he said that happens with a lot of people. It's because, all those male trees and uh, stuff coming off the prairies. Oh, yep, yep. And then stopping at Lake Michigan, so people in Michigan yeah. don't necessarily get the amount of allergies that we get here in the. Uh, Illinois. That's neat. At least that's what my quack doctor tells me. Yeah, what does he know? Exactly. You know, in his Yelp uh, reviews, one of them is, just another practitioner of Western medicine, (laughs) which is fantastic. So what's new by me is I have now moved on from the anxiety of not knowing when I would have what will hopefully be the very last medical procedure in my 16-month-long healthcare nightmare. To now having anxiety about the procedure that's scheduled now, having anxiety about the procedure itself, as well as anxiety when it comes to the recovery, as well as the recuperation and how it may affect me during the upcoming This Is Hell anniversary and listener appreciation party, which takes place only 25 days after my surgery. And I got to be hosting that party. And then there's the anxiety relating to how it may affect my family vacation at Cottage on Lake in early August. And then there's the anxiety about what might be years of physical therapy. Still, it is a huge relief to know when my operation will take place and that it's finally happening. And now that I know, I can prepare myself for all the anxieties that will follow. So I got that going for me. Will, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what's priority in your budget that needs to be cut 
What's the priority in your budget that needs to be cut? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever this is hell swag you want. There's the This Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, the face mask, the coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter hat, uh, as well as the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, and we hope that you do, because not only does that show support for This Is Hell, but all of a sudden, you're walking around as our own personal billboard for This Is Hell. We truly appreciate that. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth, Will, what's Jeff doing during this week's moment of truth? Jeff cleans up after the dog man. What the hell is the dog I man? I don't know, man. But no I can't one. wait for the nightmares that come <laughs> of imagining who that is. Who that dog man is. Yeah. We got an email from Hunter A. who wants to donate his art as a prize for the raffle happening during our This Is Hell anniversary and listener appreciation party and art show, This Is Art, which is happening on Saturday, July 22nd, beginning at 3 in the afternoon in the bar downstairs from where I'm sitting right now, Carrie's Lounge, C-A-R-Y-S, Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. Hunter A. writes, Hi, Chuck. My name is Hunter. I'm a glassblower in Boise, Idaho. So I wonder if he listens to us on uh, Radio Free Moscow in Moscow, Idaho. I was wondering if you guys would want a shot glass that says this is hell for the giveaway raffle. Hunter then asks if the correct address to mail any donated prize for the raffle is this is hell, 2251 West Devon Avenue, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. And Hunter and everyone listening, it is. And we look forward to giving away a bespoke, and yes, that's the first time I've ever used that word on the show, bespoke, that's the second time, one-of-a-kind, uh, one uh, uh, original, handcrafted, blown glass, this is hell, shot glass during the raffle at this year's party, which as always also features music, food, the opening of the This Is Art art show, and of course the raffle. If you are an artist or know one, or love the work of an artist that so much that you think they'll be a perfect match for the This Is Hell This Is Art show that opens at the party, or if you are a musician or know a musician or appreciate a musician's music that you think will be a perfect fit for the anniversary party, email me at chuck at thisishell.com, share your suggested guest, uh, suggested artist or musician in a sample of their art or music, and who knows, maybe your recommended artist or musician will be featured at the party. Keep in mind, we have uh, t well, we take no commission whatsoever for any art sold at the show, and we have been told we pay our musicians far too much. Again, if you have what you think would make a great raffle prize or would like to suggest an artist or musical act to be a part of the This Is Hell Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show, email us your ideas to chuck at thisishell.com. And again, that party is happening on Saturday, July 22nd at the bar downstairs from where I'm sitting right now, Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. Coming up, we're discussing chronic fatigue syndrome, Will shares more of your answers to this week's question from hell. We'll tell you what's happening on Thursday's bonus podcast for Patreon subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell that goes live every Thursday morning at 10 a.m. Chicago time. And following this week's moment of truth, Jeff Dorch, with Jeff Dorchin, we will be announcing the winner of this week's question from hell. Live from the United States, where capitalism is the virus. This is hell. Imagine, if you will, suffering from something that is not 
only difficult to recognize by yourself, but hard to diagnose even, even for the most professional healthcare worker. So difficult that they seem incapable of doing anything to help you out, to treat it in any way. Almost as if they don't believe, even believe that there is anything wrong with you, but you. Here to help us have a better understanding of the suffering that comes with fatigue and what's behind any pandemic of exhaustion that may be taking place, writer, speaker, and eco-feminist Jennifer London is author of American Breakdown, Our Ailing Nation, My Body's Revolt, and the 19th Century Woman Who Brought Me Back to Life. Welcome to This Is Hell, London. Thank you, Chuck. Good morning. Good morning. It's great to have you on the show. We want to thank again Chris Busby over at the Ballard and the Mainer for suggesting London be on our show today. You can find out more about London at her website, jenniferlondon.com. You begin by sharing a quote from Virginia Woolf writing in On Being Ill. Considering how common illness is, how tremendous the spiritual change that it brings, how astonishing when the lights of health go down, the undiscovered countries that are then disclosed, it becomes strange indeed that illness has not taken its place with love and battle and jealousy among the prime themes of literature. So, London, are we in denial of illness like all other disasters, whether it's climate change or pandemics? Are we in denial about all of life's greatest challenges to our very survival? And if you believe that we are in denial, why are we in such denial about our own survival? I love that question, Chuck. Thank you so much. And I also thank you for reading that quote at the beginning. It it gave me goosebumps. It still gives me goosebumps. I mean, because because of that um Virginia Woolf way back then was saying like people are no people ignore illness. They don't understand it is it's horrible to experience, but the stories that it holds can tell us so much about where we are as a culture. Um and for the individual, it can it can be sort of a path of of growth for the individual, not that people get sick because they have to grow, but just because I mean, it's just a way to um, we can make use of this horrible thing that happened to us by thinking about um, what it what we might learn from it. And the question you just asked is, um, are, is the public in denial about illness? And yeah, I mean, think about for me, one of the things I think about is um, like when somebody gets sick, I think it's sort of a knee jerk reaction to think about what they did wrong to get sick. Maybe they were a smoker. Maybe they um, ate too many Hostess Twinkies, which I don't even know if we have those anymore. Whatever it is, they didn't exercise enough. They didn't do enough self-care. But like we have this inner um, knee-jerk response to put it on the person, which is not only, like I, I think, probably a human response, but it's a very American individualistic response. And we can see how it's playing out now in uh, what is no longer called the pandemic, um, which is, I mean, it's great that things have gotten as much better as they have. But um, throughout the pandemic, um, people were talking, journalists were writing about, the government was talking about how many deaths were happening as a result of COVID, but not not getting nearly enough press press was how many people were getting long COVID. And it was a significant percentage. At one point, the the statistics were about 30%. Long COVID, um, about 50 
percent of cases of long COVID are um, they also fulfill the criteria for uh, what we now call myalgic encephalomyelitis slash chronic fatigue syndrome or MECFS. And um, so it's it's a long COVID is a devastating illness that I don't think the public was given enough information about, but also. It's, I think, again, it's sort of a natural human response to think, well, that won't happen to me. I certainly did not expect to get a case of mono in 1989 when I was 21 that was going to put me in a case of state of chronic illness and disability for the rest of my life or <laughs> the foreseeable future, many decades. I had no idea. I was a strong, healthy young person. Um, and I, I, I wish, I mean, COVID isn't over. I just heard about two people working at a pharmacy nearby who who got COVID and um, people are still going to be getting long COVID and I wish people would protect themselves more. So what do you think we miss when we only focus on the individual when we are considering illness? Do you think that even can undermine any notion of a public health response, for instance, when it came to the pandemic. Do you think that individualism, that focus on the individual with illness, uh, may have distracted us from any more effective or efficient public health response? Yeah. Um, as you were beginning the question, I was just thinking about um, like one of the effects of the individual response to illness is that it shames the person who got sick and um, shuns them. It shames and shuns them, actually. So it puts them on the outside of society. And then um, the bigger question that you asked is, um, can you repeat that? Oh, it, I, I was just saying that uh, what do we miss when we only focus on the individual when we consider illness? Wait, we miss like the bigger picture. And so that's part of what uh, chronic fatigue syndrome was first um, identified in the uh, late 80s. Um, I'm not a malinger, not um, mentally ill. I mean, I do suffer from depression and anxiety sometimes, but that's not um, that's not the same at all as having MECFS or long COVID for those who have that. And um, so I started the book looking at that picture. But as I began researching, I was also writing about Alice James, who was a diarist in the 19th century. Um, she was the sister of the writer Henry James and the um, psychologist William James. She was brilliant and fascinating and witty, and she suffered from uh, what was called neurasthenia. And what I read when I read the biography of her in uh, Jean, Jean Strauss wrote this brilliant biography of Alice James, and I read it about five years into my illness, and I felt like I'd met my sis sister, my illness sister, and our symptoms were so alike. And I started looking at like what was happening in the 19th century and what's happening now. Are there any, is there any overlap? And that's how I just did, I sort of went further and further down the rabbit hole until I began to sort of be able to piece the pieces together and look at the effects of um, America's particularly malignant form of capitalism on our health. And so when we only look at the individual, we fail to see the bigger picture. And so when we tell people, the problem is you're just not doing enough self-care, you need to do more self-care, 
Um, that's what doctors are being told too. Um, other doctors are now saying that they're suffering from moral injury because the systems that are in place prevent them from giving the kind of care that they know that patients need. And but the doctors themselves are being told, well, you just need to like do more yoga and meditate. And when you do that, you fail to look. You, it's a distraction from the systems that are the larger problem. So why do you think we want to deny the influence of capitalism on everything? Like we do not. We, there's this desire to not have any uh, analytical, have any a- analysis of capitalism, not to hold capitalism accountable for any of the problems that society has. So why do you? Uh, why do we want to deny the influence of capital capitalism even on our own physical health? That it might be having negative impacts on our own physical health. Why do we uh, want to deny the influence of capitalism, even when it comes to our our very own survival? You know, capitalism is the water we live in and uh, that we swim in. And um, so here in America, we have no we have no other experience of that. And we're told we live in the greatest country on earth. Um, anybody who doesn't travel much or read a lot doesn't. Uh, doesn't know. I grew up in Canada, so I had sort of an outsider's perspective as I got ill without health insurance shortly after I moved here. And um, so I know that other countries do certain things better than we do. And um, the powers that be, so so within the book, I also talk about um, studying for my master's in social work. And the one of the first classes I took was called Human Behavior in the Social Environment. And that was where I learned about the uh, the first time really i learned about the the impacts of capitalism and um learned about how like the powers that be all they want to do is keep their power and you can see it now um in the wealthy politicians and the people who have the highest amount of wealth they um try their best to maintain what they have and control the systems to distract from what they have so that we the public who are much higher in numbers and would have a lot of power if we really came together don't do that so and they've got us all convinced in various in various ways even think about advertising teaches us that we don't have enough and we always need more the hope, hopeful assumption would be that fatigue is treated better today than it was in Alice James' day when it was treated as a form of hysteria. The Mayo Clinic offers this definition. My, I'm going to try to pronounce this correctly. Myalgic encephalomyelitis. Hey, not well bad. done. Not bad. Pretty impressive. <laughs> uh, chronic fatigue syndrome, MECFS, is a complicated disorder. It causes extreme fatigue that lasts for at least six months. Symptoms worsen with physical or mental activity, but don't fully improve with rest. The cause of MECFS is unknown, although there are many theories. Experts believe it might be triggered by a combination of factors. There's no single test to confirm a diagnosis. You may need a variety of medical tests to rule out other health problems that have similar symptoms. Treatment for the condition focuses on easing symptoms. And now I'm thinking, London, I have chronic fatigue syndrome, and I'm concerned my partner has the same condition as 
She has all of those symptoms as well, but so far without the more debilitating effects like you, like how you have suffered or how you did suffer for five years, then eventually had a relapse. Is chronic fatigue syndrome something we all suffer from to some degree or another? Is it a disease of society deserving of the kind of, you know, the ministry of loneliness that was launched in the UK in the latter half of the 2010s? Or is this not as much a public health concern as it is more of a disorder suffered by individuals. Is this something that we should be having a public health, having addressed through a public health concern like we did with COVID? Is that how bad chronic fatigue syndrome is getting in the United States today? Well, one thing I want to make sure not to do is um, undermine the completely debilitating effects of MECFS to the people who suffer from it. And um, so, yes, I do think that there's an epidemic of fatigue in America. And I um, I think it might be, it's one of the most um, common things that people bring to doctors when they go see doctors. Um, and that kind of fatigue is different from MECFS and in, in, certainly in... Um, the difference in impact and the enormity of the disability uh, with MECFS. Um, and also um, MECFS comes with a lot of other symptoms like you read at the beginning. Um, but I, well, I'll say I, I suffered a relapse in um, right before the pandemic and I hadn't been that sick since 1989, 1990 when I first was ill. And I was completely laid up on the couch or in bed, I felt like my energy was minus, it was in the negatives, and that every time I even moved, I was costing more energy. I couldn't even um, read, I couldn't read books that had any kind of conflict in them. Sometimes I was too tired to even hold a book. And um, so that's like a, that's like a kind of fatigue that's of a whole other category than the kind of fatigue and that um, many Americans are walking around with that also isn't okay. And the problem is that when we're walking around overworked, too stressed, and um, not earning enough to get by, uh, which is part of the problem here in the country now, since ever since 1973 was sort of the high point, and ever since then, our um, what we earn for how much we produce has gone lower and lower. And so we're all scrambling. We're all scrambling and it's not good for our health. Um, it keeps us in a state of fight or flight um, that can make us more prone to um, any number of diseases, inc including chronic fatigue. Chronic fatigue syndrome, MECFS is most often triggered by some sort of um, uh, virus. Like in my case, it was mono. Um, and now that we know about um, how some people who got long COVID who had, were asymptomatic and never even experienced COVID in the first place, there's some question about whether even um, even uh, MECFS might be always be caused by some sort of virus, but um, not always known. But the, even our vulnerability to viruses is increased when we're under stress. So let's talk about how you first, uh, you said you got mono, and then that led to you getting MECFS. 
You write, at the time, I was the live-in caretaker of a 1789 historic house museum in Maine. Its substantial perennial garden laid out in uh, measured decorum inside a white picket fence. When I think now of that garden, I see it bursting in the violent bloom of high summer, stands of white Lietris uh, spiking the azure sky, gold rudbeckia six feet tall and toppling, aphids on the helanthus, uh, mold on the flocks, weeds overwhelming all the back beds. The garden was too much for me. Was your uh, fatigue and is CFS in general triggered by not only the work you had done or the work you had yet to do? Can fatigue be triggered not by the work but by the work that has yet to be done. Can even that anticipation of work trigger symptoms of fatigue? That's an interesting question. I mean, I feel, yes, in terms of that being a stressor, and some people are more prone to, I, I mean, it's almost like you, I mean, I, I do stress out even now about the anticipation of work or feeling like there's not enough time to get everything done. That's also a pretty American thing because we just are completely overwhelmed with how much we have to work to get by and um, all the many things that we feel we need to do. Um, what I was thinking about as you were asking the question was that um, I believe that MECFS and all disease is uh, biopsychosocial. And um, before I even go any further with that, I want to say that that term, which is a term I learned in social work school, um, is often not looked upon highly by people with MECFS because it was used against them in the earlier days and maybe still now, I don't know, um, by doctors who took out the bio part. They would say biopsychosocial, but then they would just say that MECFS, like they were basically saying it's psychosocial. Um, but the bio is really critical, right? Otherwise, people are going to be dismissed by the health system and told to go see a therapist. And um, and so there's a there's a biology. You can be predisposed to MECFS from due to genetics. Um, you can be predisposed to it due to childhood trauma. There's something called the ACE studies, um, adverse childhood effects um, studies, and um, what they found is that the more um, adverse experiences that children had, the greater number of health issues that they were going to have as an adult. And, and those adverse experiences can be big traumas like sexual abuse, and it can be traumas like um, a parent leaving or a parent being in jail. Or um, There's a list of basically 10 things, and the more it is 10 things, the more you check off, the worse, the higher your risk for some other health issues. Um, so that's like an example of how the social affects the psycho, which affects the bio, right? Like what happens to us in our bodies and our minds affects what happens in our brain and what happens in our brain um, affects our biology. And we, it's so, it's still hard for, for me even, because again, is the way that we're acculturated to think about the body to really um, grasp that the mind and the body are one. The brain is a part of the body. 
And when we try to split them off as two separate things, then we're not able to um, help people and treat people as effectively as we could. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. And that brings up the bigger point that I was thinking about when I was reading your work. And that is how so many healthcare professionals were separating the two, the biological and the emotional, the biological and the psychological from two as if there as if there was a binary when it came to disease. Is this disease one that is biological or is this one that is, quote unquote, emotional or psychological. And that binary just does, it doesn't seem really to make sense. How much do you think that we've gotten over that binary when it comes to healthcare, especially for things like uh, CFS, uh, when it comes to this binary of whether it's physical or emotional? I don't think we have. And it's, it's uh, I mean, things have certainly improved since I was first sick in 1989. I mean, it's now acknowledged as a, an illness that's a very serious multi-system illness that um that impacts people but um it's so cultural and so our medicine our whole medical system is still um founded on the idea of um the Descartes split of the mind and the body and I believe that illnesses like ME-CFS long COVID multiple chemical sensitivities um and and many more are basically um calling for us to rethink our approach to medicine and i believe that what we need is some kind of new um office or institute in the in the national um institutes of health that specifically focuses on illnesses like these these complex multi-system illnesses um and that would include um a uh team coming from all different kinds of uh, backgrounds. Um, so because we these illnesses aren't the simple illnesses like you have bronchitis and you take uh, an antibiotic and you're fine. Um, or like when I had cataract surgery, it was the most miraculous thing. My eyes were getting blurry. I went to the eye doctor. He told me I had cataracts. Then they fixed them. I was like, oh, my God, is this what it's like for other people? You just like you have a problem that you go to the doctor, they tell you what's wrong and they fix it. Like, think that's what um, Descartes idea of the split between mind and body has, has helped us to do. It's like break things down to the smallest parts in order to um, fix things like um, do cataract surgery. But these multi-system illnesses can't be broken down to their smallest parts because our body is all interconnected. And if we um, if we try to look at it just one way, we're actually it's going to be invisible to us. It that's what doctors and researchers have said for decades is like, and they're saying it now to long COVID people. Well, the tests are fine, so you're fine, and off you go. Or if you're having, you're fine. Uh, it's just anxiety. Go find a therapist, and here's some anti anti anxiety meds. That happened to a friend of mine with long COVID, and um, just because the tests show up normal doesn't necessarily mean that the body isn't sick. We have limitations. The, those tests are limited in what they can pick up. And we have, I don't know, I just feel like there's a whole call to a different way to do medicine. And now is the time. Yeah. And it would affect, it would impact not just me and people like me. It would have a hugely positive effect on all of us if we could look at people as whole people in bodies with minds in a social um, culture 
and how the and all the ways that the body um, is interconnected. So you mentioned multiple chemical sensitivity. What is the link between multiple uh, chemical sensitivity and MECFS? The link is just that a lot of people who have MECFS also suffer from multiple chemical sensitivity. They don't necessarily, uh, people can have one or the other, but it seems like people who suffer from MECFS are more vulnerable to developing multiple chemical sensitivity. That's me talking. I don't I don't remember seeing a study about that, but I do know that there's a lot of overlap and I do write about that in the book. Um, and um, for me, I already had the mono that had turned into MECFS. And um, meanwhile, I was completely, I felt, I thought the government was keeping us all safe, which I mean, I really thought the government was keeping us safe. And, um, you know, my, my cat, my pets got fleas. I flea bombed the house. You know, I, um, I worked with pesticides when I in the garden and with the animals in the in the historic house museum that I um that I was taking care of and um I you know fresh paint in the house I was basically I already had a vulnerable system and I wish somebody had said to me your system is vulnerable you should do the best you can to avoid um chemicals because it's just like one more thing to um for your for your for your body mind to process for your body and your brain to process you also mention failure as a possibility for triggering what might be a cfs you point out that what i saw more than anything even from that vantage point of looking from your bed in this historic mansion was my failure to keep up is a failure to keep up in itself exhausting, let alone whatever work is getting done? And did what you saw as a failure, because you saw it as a failure, cause the worst symptoms of your five, your original five-year bout with fatigue? And is failure the overriding feeling that comes with CFS? And if so, what is being failed? That's such a great question. I hadn't thought of it quite that way, but, and I can't speak for everybody, but maybe, I mean, I think like for a lot of us, including me, my first doctor um, told me I was just depressed and the best thing for me would be to get back to work. Um, and so all, all of my sort of mental energy went into defending myself from um, those kinds of belief systems, um, both, and I was defending myself both like externally but largely internally so there was like a part of me that was really busy fending off that kind of crap because it wasn't accurate um and it's blaming and um but underneath that underneath that there is a feeling of failure especially for people in the early stages of illness so for people who, who are dealing with long covid now all you want to do is get back to work all you want to do is go to the grocery store and pick your own groceries um, take good care of your children. And um, I felt a sense of failure, I think, all the time. It wasn't always conscious, but it was always there. And yeah, that has an impact. And when I relapsed more recently and I'd done all this work, you know, I'd already knew how to pace myself and not push myself too much. And I felt like I knew all the right things to do and and that wasn't actually enough. And I felt like I was failing at healing. 
And I had a wonderful um, coach at the time who was helping me. And like, finally, she was like, maybe it's time to stop trying and just accept what is, which is not easy thing for somebody of my um, personality to do. And um, I think it was critical to me sort of getting a toehold and to get back towards recovery. So it's like a fine line that's hard to... Um, hard to be clear on when you're dealing with the illness with like how much should I be trying and how much should I be accepting and I think that it's sort of a balance of both things right uh, well is is fatigue then uh, is it driven not only by work from the anticipation to the fear of failure to any contentious relationship uh, with our work but also associated with a guilt about work imposed by others, by a social expectation of work, are not only our own expectations of work, but others' expectations of our own work, are those causes of fatigue? Is fatigue caused by the failure to live up to others' and society's expectations? Yeah. Um, I first want to just back up and say that like the fatigue is very much like a biological thing that a doctor could explain better than I, um, not all doctors, but specialists could. Um, and some of it's in my book. Um, but, um, I'm sorry, repeat that question because I had an answer to the rest. I was just saying that uh, uh, is there a uh, is fatigue caused by the failure to live up to others and society's expectations of your work? Right. And so, yeah, I mean, I was pretty fortunate that I've always been pretty fortunate that most people, if they've been judgmental of me, they've kept it to themselves. Um, When I was first sick, uh, my dad, who's very um, uh, who is a a very productivity oriented person as am I. Um, and it's, and you know, 1989, he was trying to understand it, but it was really hard for people to understand, um, because of the media and the, the lack of research. And, um, he, and I was at the time working at a group home for people with disabilities. And, um, it was like a really like a low key job. Like I could sit down, um, It could be a little bit emotionally stressful, but like that was basically, I couldn't even do that. Like it was just too much to even do that. And my dad was like, well, could you just get a job like at a record store or something? And like he didn't like being on my feet would have been even worse. And there is such a um, mandate in the U.S. to be working. And if you're not working, you're not of value. Right. If we're not producing for the for the powers that be then we're not of value, which might be part of the reason why um, MECFS has been so shunned. And, um, you know, I don't think that long COVID is getting the attention that it should be getting. So the latest research on long COVID is that 10% of people who get Omicron um, um, end up with long COVID, 10%. And it doesn't always go away. We are speaking with writer, speaker, and eco-feminist Jennifer London, author of American Breakdown, Our Ailing Nation, My Body's Revolt, and the 19th Century Woman Who Brought Me Back to Life. You can find out more about London at her website, jenniferlunden.com. So is part of the onset of fatigue feeling that you are 
just going. Because that's what you write. You write, I kept going, resting when I could, but mostly I kept on going. So is it just getting done what needs to be done and nothing more that your life in some way has lost any greater meaning than just doing? Yeah, which is why I got depressed. <laughs> and that's what happened um, the first time I got ill and the second time I w- uh, when I relapsed um, so badly uh, in ni- 2019, I was my mood was good for about two months. And um, then the fatigue had gotten to the point where like I couldn't do any of the things that brought my life meaning. And so um, you said at the beginning of the show um, that, you know, uh, I'm not. I don't remember how you worded it, but basically, the symptoms of uh, ME/CFS when they're as bad as they were for me in 2009, end of 2019, early 2020, are actually uh, more disabling than HIV or even or being treated for cancer. HIV until the latest sta- stages of AIDS or being treated for cancer or even um, heart disease. So it's never been taken seriously for how disabling it is. Which is amazing because you would think that sympathetic healthcare workers would be concerned. Uh, you write it was like a wicked flu that never went away. With chronic fatigue syndrome, does it seem like you are always sick, but each time it's with a new disease? Because I'm curious how much we might, in our, our own self diagnosis, dismiss it as hypochondria or mm-hmm. family or friends might dismiss it as hypochondria. So uh, does it seem like you are always sick, from, uh, but each time it's with a new disease? Um, I always know what it is, but that's because I got a diagnosis. So if people, I especially am thinking about, um, so, oh, about 15 million people are dealing with long COVID right now. About maybe as many as two and a half million people are dealing with chronic fatigue syndrome before, like, and this is that statistic is from before long COVID was before COVID came. Um, and um, many people, it can take um, a decade to get a diagnosis. And that's not just for MECFS or long COVID, it's also for autoimmune diseases. And so during that time, you're having your body fall apart in multiple ways and nobody knows what's going wrong and i can imagine that it can it would feel like uh different diseases off i think for autoimmune diseases that might be especially the case um but for me i uh chronic fatigue syndrome was in the news in 1989 and when i didn't get better from the mono i suspected that that's what i had my first doctor was dismissive, as I said, but I was able to get connected to a doctor who would, you know, who actually had knowledge of the disease and was able to diagnose me. I mean, officially, you know, somebody in power, like I needed somebody in power to diagnose me. Um, um, whether he had much more knowledge than I did. I mean, one of the things that people with ME-CFS have to do, and I'm sure it's true for long COVID too, is we have to do a lot of our own research because the doctors don't know. So a lot of times we walk into the office knowing more than the doctor. That's not the ideal way things should be. Um, So it's funny, you keep asking questions and it's still early in the morning for my head. (laughs) And then I forget to tie it back. Okay, uh, (laughs) I I was going to ask you, did you ever feel that you were incurable. Is that an issue with people yes. who have ME-CFS? That it it's was not- terrifying. Okay. 
I mean, it's like the terrifying, like when I first was sick and I was like, oh my God, what if this is chronic fatigue syndrome? Um, and I guess that was the tie-in. The last part of the question was, yes. Yeah. So because I knew it was chronic fatigue syndrome, I could identify that all the things that were happening were related. And I do still have other physical things that happen, which may or may not be related. But I think that ultimately, like my body is um, compromised by that disease and makes me more prone to others. Um, and now I've done it again. I backed up to you and then um, to say the one thing, and then you said something else that was compelling and I should be taking notes as you're asking. Can you repeat that last question, please? Oh, sure. Let me see if I can find it real quick. <laughs> let's just, let's just, uh, uh, no, I was just talking about uh, how you felt that you were incurable, you know, and how. Oh, it, yeah. yeah. So that was terrifying to me then. I'm sure it's terrifying for everybody with long COVID now. And um, now I have a better sense of things that I can do that can help. Um, and I'm just so grateful after my relapse to be able to have a full life, even if I'm still not able to um, work full time and I still have to pace myself. And you write in the thick of the relapse, my energy meted out in uh, small doses. I was yeah. soothed by my doctor's reminder because it meant I could stop flogging myself for not being able to do capitalism right. Do you mm -hmm. believe that some people like yourself are wired to not do capitalism right? Yeah, well, yeah. I'm thinking about the word wired. Is it like... I mean, certainly people with chronic illness are not able to do capitalism right. So we feel like failures and some societal messages that we get are that we're failures. And sometimes family members or friends might even say that. Um, um, are some people wired not to have? I just. The capitalism we have in America. Isn't good for any of us. None of us is wired for this level of frenetic, stressed activity. And we're focusing on the wrong things. If we're focusing, if the, if we're focusing on acquiring stuff um, and making as money, much money as possible, um, or um, we're missing what's most critical to um, health and well-being, which is being able to be in the moment. So do you believe increasingly capitalism in our brains with the advent of neoliberalism and more unfettered versions of capitalism, that capitalism in our, in our brains are becoming more and more incompatible and everyone's future is one that is at least similar to yours, where healing CFS is a necessity? Yeah, I, 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 um, I think that MECFS is one expression of the level of busyness that we um, and stress that we live under in capitalism in the U.S. But um, there, there are some cancers are increasing. Um, there are uh, lots of other health issues that are um increasing and i do think just it's like it affects us all of us have are born with different bodies and different genetic predispositions and it and the stress of um american capitalism affects us all in different ways 
And we're seeing here in the United States life expectancy dropping. Now, a lot of people say, well, that's because of COVID. But during that same period of time, I mean, already the UK has already had their bounce back from their life expectancy going back up. And throughout the entire COVID pandemic up to this point, the life expectancy of people in Japan has actually gone up during that time. So you can't just dismiss the life expectancy in the United States dropping to what has happened so far with COVID. We have been speaking with writer, speaker, and eco-feminist Jennifer London, author of American Breakdown, Our Ailing Nation, My Body's Revolt, and the 19th Century Woman Who Brought Me Back to Life. This is a fascinating book. You can find out more about London at her website, jenniferlunden.com. One last question for you, London. And And as always, with all of our guests, it's the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. So, London is M-E-C-F-S. Our brains rebelling against what we call work under capitalism. Our, Our bodies through depression, loneliness, OCD, ADD, ADHD, CFS, rising up against the current form of capitalism, which is neoliberalism. Are our bodies revolting even if we aren't? Yes. I'm cautious of people who, who, are, li- who are living with MECFS. See, I don't, you're right. It's a this is hell question because um, uh, people with MECFS are really sensitive to um, any implications. It's, it's psychological because of the ways that we've been maligned and abused. And, and neglected with that way of looking at things. But yes, I think that MECFS is one way that our um, systems rebel against. And I love that you put in like unintentionally, like I didn't intend to get sick. I want to be productive. I want to make it in this country. I want to feel economically secure. And uh, my my body c- can't, couldn't. <laughs> so yes well i love your laugh first of all i really appreciate (laughs) it during this very dark conversation i really appreciate it london uh, it's been a fantastic conversation thanks so much to chris chris busby over at the bollard for suggesting having you on the show thank you so much for being on i really appreciate it and uh, please stay in touch with us when you have more writing come out we'd love to have you back on the show thank you so much for having me chuck okay take care london yeah take care Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this is hell. And maybe you are like me and knew nothing about chronic fatigue syndrome before our talk with London. I mean, sure, I did a ton of research for our conversation, but all that meant is I went from knowing absolutely nothing about the chronic fatigue syndrome to being able to pretend I know something about chronic fatigue syndrome. If you feel like you are like me and feel like you actually learned something about fatigue and capitalism, and yet again realized, yes, this is hell. Show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which goes live on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell every Thursday morning at 10 a.m. Chicago time, central daylight savings time, I guess. Or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support. Producer Will Ippen will now remind us, Will, please, what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from hell is what's a priority in your budget that needs to be cut over on Patreon? Little drippy dentist says empathy. 
see you next Tuesday. Um, Good lord. The farts. God. So hard. Good lord. <laughs> right. Classy, classy. Our listeners are so high, bro. Oh, my God. Um, over on Twitter, <laughs> EatFart69 says, Sigs. <laughs> okay. Edison K says, I spend money only on necessities and my eclectic rubber duck collection. So food. <laughs> so food? So food. <laughs> Jesus. All right. Um, <laughs> Frank L., your mom. I really want to see this rubber duck collection. And by the way, Frank, yeah. I'll leave my mom out of it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Edison, <laughs> if you can like send us a picture of this rubber duck collection. <laughs> definitely uh, want to see it. Definitely want to put it on our social media. <laughs> exactly. Um, UNC fan says labor, obviously. Yeah. Typical UNC fan. And Consti says taxes. Okay. I could do without that obligatory budget item, you know, like the 1% do. Except I don't want to deal with moose-haired, pointy-shoed tax lawyers to arrange opaque Swiss, Belize, and Cayman Islands entities' banking accounts for that. Wow. Wow. All right. Yeah. So, I'd like to put that into AI and see what kind of image we'd get out of it. Right? <laughs> and then uh, let's see what's going on on Facebook. All right. There it is. Uh, a few a few responses on Facebook. Um, Adam A. <laughs> I can tell you already like the first one. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, not my Rachel Dolezal OnlyFans <laughs> subscription. Say it ain't so. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Adam A. Won last week's this is the question from hell, and boy, that's a good one. That's a strong follow. Oh, as Adam's always going swinging for the fences. Mark A says, I could cut back on my Houghton Lake Resorter Plus Max subscription. <laughs> God, I was just reading the Resorter today. What a ridiculous newspaper. Oh, <laughs> just man. absolutely ridiculous. I wonder if it's anything. It's probably a lot like the Lakeland Times up in Monaco, Wisconsin. Oh, yeah. Is it just like this little conservative rich guy's like mouthpiece? Sure, but it, yeah. uh, it's also like... Uh, local obituaries oh yes and the obituaries are when they talk about the person who died it's always framed in a way as if their last eight years of their life was what they loved to do their entire life so it'll say you know uh, chuck loved knitting and watching his soap operas and watching the birds and sitting at the <laughs> end of the day di- it's like i didn't love doing those things those are the things i was doing while i was waiting to die. Right. These are just <laughs> the things I was left able to do. Exactly. Okay, after Mark A? Uh, after Mark A, we have Borky B. <laughs> Says lube. <laughs> wow. David. Borky B, using a lot of lube over there. I guess so. <laughs> Practicing that self-care, perhaps. Yes, exactly. Uh, uh, David Z. <laughs> this His is amazing. is the LSD I use to soak my... <laughs> Phylacteries in every weekday morning. <laughs> did you look up what that is? Phylacteries? Yes. I did not. All right. Uh, well, let me tell you because I got to look this up. So, again, <laughs> David Z, the LSD I used to soak my phylacteries every weekday morning. So, you might be like me and Will and have no idea what phylacteries are. Lucky you. I looked it up. Phylacteries or Teflin, T E F I L L I N are a set of small leather boxes with leather straps containing scrolls of parchment inscribed on vellum with verses from the Torah. Teflon are worn by adult Jews during weekday morning prayers as a reminder to keep the law. All right, so we're soaking that in acid. Wow, you're soaking that. Wow. (laughs) 
Wow. Any more? Uh, yeah, we got two more on okay. Facebook. Esel S <laughs> says, "This is hell merch, damn it." See, yeah, I, and, that makes sense. And uh, I don't know how to pronounce this particular name. I'm bad at Polish pronunciation. Oh, that's okay. Wojciech. 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 Yeah. Okay. Um, pandemic level alcohol consumption. Let's <laughs> <laughs> nice. get on. And then we have one on Discord from Kim G. Always reliable. Yeah. Sating my dog tooth. I don't know what that means. M- me neither. Sating my dog tooth. Kim G, email us. Yeah. Chuck at this is We want to know more from what? a lot of you listeners. <laughs> what, what, is about, what about this dog tooth? Is this a superhero of some sort? Is yeah. it an actual dog's tooth? I've noted that it's one word, dog tooth. And it's not capitalized. Oh, she, they put it as two words. Oh, did they? As I look at it. Oh, yeah. okay. I don't know if that's been edited since you looked at it. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not too we sure. get to the bottom of this. <laughs> so you can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us. You can email it to us. Uh, but if you're going to email it to us, you have to email it to thisishellradio at gmail.com because it's the final uh, show of the week. Uh, and we're going to be announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorch in the Moment of Truth. Will, what's Jeff up to again on the Moment of Truth? Jeff cleans up after the dog man. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996. This is hell, and if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. Become a subscriber to this is hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell. Get exclusive access to our weekly Patreon podcast, which uh, goes live every week on Thursday morning at 10 a.m. Chicago time. Again, at the same place. Patreon.com slash this is hell. This week on Patreon, you will never guess what disorder I think... I have this time, because I am your bitter, blind, and very broke host of This Is Hell. I don't have the insurance, the money, or the actual time to actually see an actual specialist who can actually accurately diagnose what the hell is wrong with me. So I have to use this here show, as well as Patreon, for my own self-diagnoses. Thus far, with the help of our guests, I found myself to be depressed, lonely, obsessive-compulsive, with attention deficiency. And now I can add yet another disorder I learned about here on the show and add that to my list of many conditions. What will it be this time? Well, if you've been listening to today's show, you can probably guess. But what I'm likely suffering from is likely the same thing that you and everyone on the planet is suffering from. And again, you can probably guess what that is too. But if you want to find out for certain... You have to tune into this week's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell, which goes live on Thursdays, 10 a.m. Central Daylight Time. Also on Patreon, for a few weeks there, the Wayback Machine was stuck on 20 years. We did everything we could to fix it. But every time we'd bring an interview up from the archives, the interview would be from 2003. So a couple of weeks ago, I just kicked the whole machine to see what would happen. And we got it kind of fixed, or at least we thought we did. Now the Wayback Machine is stuck on 15 years, and all we can get out of it from the archives is conversations we had on the show back in 2008. I think we have to take apart the entire archive and rebuild it to make sure that we don't have this problem with the Wayback Machine anymore. So this week we're sharing an interview from June 14th, 2008, when we spoke with John Bowe, author of Nobody's, Modern American Slave Labor and the Dark Side of the New Global Economy. 
In 2004, John received the J. Anthony Lukash Work in Progress Award, the Sidney Hillman Award for journalists, writers, and public figures who pursue social justice and public policy for the common good, and the Richard J. Margolis Award dedicated to journalism that combines social concern and humor. Uh, our guest at that time, oh my God, I can't believe John Bowes, uh, he is the uh, co-editor of Gig, Americans Talk About Their Jobs, which was one of Harvard Business Review's best books of 2000. He also is co-screenwriter, this is the weirdest part of this whole thing, of the 1996 movie Basquiat. And the only reason I bring that up is because I said something quite embarrassing about the film to our guest, who again was a co-screenwriter on the movie. Let's just say my compliment about David Bowie's hilarious and outstanding Andy Warhol impersonation. It did not go over well. But the only way you can hear me reveal what I learned about, you know, whatever new illness I freaking have, and a 15-year-old conversation on slave labor and the new globalized economy is by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Again, if you do become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon, not only do you get a special code word giving you a discount on all of our merchandise uh, that you can find when you go to thisishell.com and you click on support, but you also get access to over 350 past Patreon podcasts. That's like, I don't know, four or five years of additional This Is Hell with each and every one of those Patreon uh, podcasts featuring a monologue by me and a classic interview that currently is not available anywhere else online. That's patreon.com slash thisishell. Coming up, Jeff with the Moment of Truth, the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell. We'll be announcing this week's winner. We'll also tell you what's happening on next week's This Is Hell. Live from Hangover Country, yes, this is hell, and I know you have Hefe on the line. One, two, you know what to do. Dog Man of Emerald City. Somewhere over the rainbow, there was a city the color of emeralds known as Emerald City. The ruler of Emerald City was a wizard. This wizard made a habit of appearing unexpectedly throughout the city in disguise. He might be an abrasive cab driver one day, an officious doorman the next, on another a friendly postal worker. There were also color-changing horses throughout the city so that the wizard in disguise could make a weak joke about the horse of a different color. You always knew it was the wizard in disguise as your law professor or your granny if such a horse happened by and the questionable entity immediately blurted out the horse of a different color quip, never mind the context. No one in Emerald City or in the entire Land of Oz thought the joke was the least bit amusing, with the exception of the wizard, although perhaps he did not care for it all that much. One day, a quartet of four drifters drifted into town. It's a good thing they weren't a quartet of five or more drifters, some said, because that's more than are allowed in a quartet within Emerald City limits. It's also lucky they weren't a quartet of three or fewer drifters, because then... They'd be one or more drifters shy of a four-part harmony a cappella group. 
They were far from harmonious. One of those drifters was a lion bereft of bravery. Another was a mostly polite mechanical with a cardiac lacuna. The third was an effigy of straw meant to frighten away corvid vermin from fields of grain. Like the mechanical, this stuffed figure lacked a major organ, in this case, the one normally housed in the cranium. The fourth drifter would later be judged by the press to be the ringleader. Some said she was but a girl. Others that she seemed a mite long in the tooth to be dressing in the gingham skirt and pigtails that were her habitual garb. All agreed that she was a surly alcoholic. None, though, had ever actually met her. Neither did they know what in blazes they were talking about. The quartet together dubbed by townies the Devil's Rejects, slouched into town on the gold-paved main drag. They hired out a couple of rooms in a back-alley flophouse on the outskirts. Rumor had it they'd been seen in the more down-at-heel neighborhoods, often in a subgrouping of a permuted pair or trio peddling poppy-derived narcotics to weak-minded munchkins. Rumors swarmed about the quartet, especially concerning the human female, like flying monkeys on a mission to enable a narcissist. Some portrayed her as a seductress who'd made sex slaves of the other three. Alternatively, it was said that she herself was the slave shared between the members of the flawed trio, probably kept enthralled to them through addiction to poppy elixir, the way a half-alive blood boy is passed among vampires. Another rumor was that she was the estranged daughter of the wizard ruler himself. The story went that she'd originally been the wizard's son, a boy named Xavier. That she'd rejected the wizard's elitism, bigotry, controlling nature, and conspicuous wealth. Therefore, by illegally obtaining a dose of the water of life, Xavier had refashioned himself into a girl named Vivian. She was referred to as Vivian by everyone, whether they were spinning tall tales or passing on rumors about her. The wizard, who decreed that everyone must call him King Elmo, had declared it illegal for anyone to violate the sacred binary of the two opposite sexes. Violations of the decree might include wearing clothes that were difficult to interpret, engaging in behavior that might muddy the demarcation separating the two parts of the binary, or transforming by magic interjections, potions, verbs, or pronouns into an unassigned sex. The decree was known as the Binary Mandate. Naturally, the draconian nature of the binary mandate fed into stories of the wizard's estrangement from his offspring and about hers from him. Nightfall in the Emerald City was a time of transformation. The city was known as she in the daytime and he at night. By day, many cats, pink, white, and transparent, prowled the gutters. But after dusk, a canine energy took hold. The streets at night teemed with dogs, howling, humping, fighting, fetching, marking territory, sniffing around for scraps left over from the daytime world. About the time the four devil's rejects slouched into town, corpses began to be discovered, victims of gruesome murders. Witnesses turning a corner, just a few moments too late to prevent any violence, swore to having spotted an unnaturally large dog slinking away from the crime scene. 
The population was terrified. Never having been much of a nightlife town to begin with, the city was now a bleak wasteland after dark, its denizens trembling in fear behind the green walls of their dwellings. Even the dogs feared the night. Rumors about the quartet of strangers roiled among the people. Was one of them a lycanthrope? What's a lycanthrope? asked some. A werewolf, answered others. Well, why didn't you just say werewolf? queried the querying bunch. King Elmo the Wizard blamed communism. If only security at the borders were tighter, things like this wouldn't happen. Only communists allowed strangers to slouch into their cities, he ranted. Communists respect no boundaries, he shrieked in his shrill little voice. Not the boundaries between cities, not the boundaries between sexes, not the boundaries between private property and the smelly masses, not the boundaries between the smelly masses and the well-heeled who were clean and charmingly perfumed and thus allowed to attend the season's spectacular galas. There was a shaggy man, always dressed in rags, whom King Elmo the Wizard often used as an example of the kind of dirty, smelly communist he especially hated. Indeed, the Shaggy Man, whose name was Shaggy Man, respected no private property nor possessions in general. He lived on the streets of Emerald City and was as much an object of fear and suspicion as were the lately arrived Devil's Rejects. One night Shaggy Man was out loitering underneath a street lamp when he met Vivian, the most whispered about of the Devil's Rejects. It turned out they were both originally from Kansas. Shaggy Man gleaned a great deal about Vivian's past, but never shared what he learned with anyone else. While conversing, they were set upon by none other than the Dog Man himself, who leaped out from the shadows, slobbering and slavering, fangs glinting in the lamplight. First he went for Vivian, but she turned out to be an excellent fighter. The Dog Man soon gave up on her and went instead for Shaggy Man, who pulled an amulet hanging from a chain around his neck out of his rags and brandished it at the Dog Man. He later said it was some kind of magnet that repelled hostility. Just then a horse came out of the darkness, a green horse that turned purple as it passed beneath the street lamp at a leisurely trot. The Dog Man made a disgusted gesture at Shaggy Man's magnet with his paw and sneered, Whoa! Ratch riffrent roller then leaped onto a high wall, ran along the top for a few yards, and disappeared into the night. The murders were never solved. They didn't stop happening either. But as with Shaggy Man and Vivian and the three other devil's rejects, the people got used to them and they eventually blended into the ongoing life of Emerald City. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. So you are familiar with the Wendigo, then? Of course I'm familiar with the Wendigo. I did a whole episode, or a whole moment of truth on the Wendigo. Yeah, I thought you did a whole, I thought so as well. You know, when I was a kid, uh, I was like yes. maybe in fifth grade, and this guy came yeah. up to me in my elementary school hallway, and he said, hey, uh, can I ask you something? You're really smart. I want to know, uh, friend, uh, my uh, grandmother said that she was driving down I-75 the other day, and she saw a dog <laughs> man, a dog that was walking on its hind legs, just walking across the interstate. Do you think dog men are real? Oh, gosh. And your answer was? What the? F <laughs> what the f <laughs> hey, uh, you know, <laughs> did you know that there is an Ublek, uh, uh Anniversary, 35th anniversary. Happy anniversary, sir. Well, thank you. Uh, 
yeah, there's we got the Bobby Khan is going to be playing, and uh, Tom Music is going to be releasing uh, his new record. Where's this happening? When is this happening? It is happening Saturday, June 10th. Doors open 5 p.m. for Golden Hour. The showtime is 8 p.m. Tickets are $20. It's happening at the <laughs> Epiphany Center for the Arts, the Sanctuary, 2000, or 201 South Ashland Avenue. 201 South Ashland Avenue, so down in the Union District. I guess that must be it. Yeah, Union City down there. All right, so repeat it one more time. Tell everybody one more time. So it's happening on Saturday, June 10th. This is the 30th. Saturday, June 10th. Yes, this Saturday. The 35th anniversary celebration of Theater Ublack, which has been doing outstanding work here in Chicago for decades. The the late David Graeber, a huge fan of Theater Ublack. So people, if you want to be a part of this, you can find out more information at theaterublack.com. You can find out all the information about what's happening this weekend. Yes, and there's also, you know, remember, there's also a record release of Tom Music and Ronnie Cooler's new record, The Many Moods of Mr. Tom. All right, then. I'll look into this. And you can also catch them at uh, Ouija's on Alternative Thursdays. Okay. Doing a whole set. It's really beautiful. I suggest you go. All right, I will. I'll see and what take, I can do. Take the girly. It's romantic. <laughs> All right. uh, one last thing. Yes, Chuck. Sir. Yeah. Oh, actually, there's two last things. One, it's to fill in is it i don't who knows to fill in okay if you say so and it looks like jews are wrapping their arms ready to uh inject heroin but they're not yeah i thought it was the i thought it was something in the picture that they showed the arm was not in the picture so i thought it was something else then i saw another image and i was like it's got to be that arm thing yeah it's a thing on their forehead too yeah oh okay uh, so it was both oh okay all right and i i have to uh I take small issue with something London said about she didn't say it I guess Virginia Woolf said it about uh, their uh, illness not being a theme in literature I know I thought that was uh, weird too if I lay dying as, as I lay dying I should say as I lay dying but even you know uh, uh, Camille the lady of the camellias uh, uh, you know consumption dying of consumption was a big thing dying of brain fever was a huge theme for Dostoevsky everybody and his brother was dying of brain fever yeah so what gives nobody knew what brain fever was and of course now you have you know starting with uh, 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 what's that what's that movie with that dude who played the Jew and the chosen Uh, 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 death be not proud you know the cancer narrative yeah the dying of cancer narrative very heroic Big theme, death and illness, but you know, whatever. Virginia Woolf had maybe she meant something else. Maybe she's meant something so much more profound that I'm just being a jerk. Well, you can't trust her. She didn't know how to spell her last name. I mean, come on, Wolf has one O. Jeffy. And also, you know, <laughs> yeah. she wasn't she wasn't sure about a lot of things. She didn't really she but she did have she had a room of her own. Yes, she did. Which is uh it's a good way to deal with capitalism. I think it makes you, you know, if you can afford a room of your own, you're doing capitalism the way I guess people expected you to. And a lot of people were afraid of her. That was the other weird thing about her. Yeah, that was well, who? Virginia Woolf. Who was afraid of Virginia Woolf? Virginia Woolf. She was afraid of Virginia Woolf? <laughs> okay. Chuck. Yes, can I go yet? You're gorgeous. <laughs> All right. Jeff. What? Stay beautiful. 
right. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is hell. Again, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins their choice of This Is Hell stuff that you can find at This Is Hell when you click on support. Will, please remind us what is the, this week's question from hell and tell us how the rest of our listeners are responding. This week's question from hell is what's a priority in your budget that needs to be cut? And it looks like we have all the answers in that so are coming in. The answers I liked the most were, uh, let's see, uh, Neil C. saying the dentist, uh, <laughs> Lil Drippy DDS saying empathy, uh, see you next Tuesday, keeping it classy with the farts. Speaking of which, eats fart, Eat Fart 69 says SIGs, which I kind of like. Uh, Frack Lou Elmo throwing out the ob- obligatory Your Mom. Uh, Adam A. saying, oh no, not my Rachel Dolezal OnlyFans subscription, say it isn't so, which is quite a callback. Borky Balboa saying, lube, I gotta know what's going on in Borky's life. But hands down, I mean, the winner, we know what it is, right? I think so. Yeah, David Z., the LSD I used to soak my phylacteries every weekday morning. David C., you are the winner of this week's question from hell. All you have to do is just uh, tell us what piece of This Is Hell swag you want uh, from what is available at thisishell.com when you click on support. Send us your email address and whatever Take you're... Take the camping mug! <laughs> <laughs> Who the hell is that? <laughs> Jeff, you got to cut off Jeff quick. I thought it was a recording of Flint Taylor. It sounded just (laughs) like him. It was a very good impersonation of uh, Flint Taylor. So uh, uh, congratulations. Just send us your mailing address. Take the camping mug. My answer to this week's question from Mel is, so the question from Mel is, what's a priority in your budget that needs to be cut? That's easy. Beef and booze. Thanks to everyone who sent in your answer to this week's question from Mel. By the way, real quick, we have a scheduling change for Patreon tomorrow. Will, who is going to, what is our featured interview on Patreon this week? Our featured interview on Patreon this week is Nick Terse, associate editor of Tom Dispatch, uh, as of the interview in 2013, um, and winner of 2009 Ridden Hour Prize for repertorial distinction uh, among other awards Um, he was on the show on January 19th 2013 to discuss his new book Kill Anything That Moves The Real American War in Vietnam so we wanted to make sure that we shared that interview this week we will be sharing the interview with Dave Bow or with John Bow the creator of Basquiat and the author of Nobody's Modern American Slave Labor and the Dark Side of the New Global Economy. We'll be sharing that a week from Thursday. Tomorrow we're sharing Nick Terse's interview from 2013 because Nick was our featured guest on Tuesday's show. So definitely check that out. Uh, Kill Anything That Moves, his book about Vietnam is just outstanding. Uh, Will, who have we confirmed to be on next week's This Is Hell? Who are our guests for next week? We have two confirmed guests next week. Week. Uh, the first is critic and journalist Kate Wagner, who returns to This Is Hell to talk about her Baffler magazine article, Bad Manners, the McMansion as a Harbinger of uh, the American Apocalypse. Oh, I'm looking forward to that one. 
Um, Kate is creator and writer of the satirical architecture blog McMansion Health. Oh, I've seen this site before. She's fantastic. Yeah, she's amazing. She's been on the show several times in the past. Oh, she's great. really great. McMansion Hell is a fantastic blog that you got to check it's out. One of the best blogs. Last out there. time she was on the show, we got such so many emails from people saying, "My parents live in a McMansion. There's nothing wrong with living in a McMansion." It was very defensive oh, audience for yeah. that one. Don't know why. Not too sure. Can't Who else is going to hit that third rail? Yeah, uh, exactly. And but McMansion Hell blog. It's hilarious. You will make you understand why McMansions are unsightly and just a crime against architecture uh, and my vision. And I'm legally blind. So, uh, Will, who's our second guest on next week's show? Our second guest is historian Joe Gouldie, who will join us to discuss her Boston Review article, The Earth for Man. Redistributing land was once central to global development efforts, and it should be today. Joe is professor of history at Southern Methodist University. Her most recent book is The Long Land War, The Global Struggle for Occupancy Rights. As always, we will have the past inside the present with Sebastian Vuper. This week in Rotten History from Rinaldo Magaldi, we'll have another moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. Huge thank you to all of this week's producers, Will Ippen, Dan Kugler. Uh, get well soon wishes to Kat Jarvanen, who has COVID. Thanks to Jeff, Rinaldo, Sebastian. Thanks to Dan Hill, Richard Norwood, uh, Alexander Jerry, Theron Thomaston, all of you, just because. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell when I will reveal my latest disorder, and we will share a 15-year-old interview on slavery and the global economy. Hang out with me tonight and other staff members of This Is Hell during This Is Hell office hours. Our weekly meet and greet, that's really a drink and think. And if you do, I'll give you a book just for showing up. It all starts around 6 p.m. this evening at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. Drop by, hang out, enjoy the beer garden, have a drink. If you want, I'll gladly give you a tour of our studios. And the art show that's happening up here is closing on Friday night. So you can come to the closing if you want, or I'll just show you, give your own personal show. Going up here. If you are interested in possibly becoming a, a producer on the show, we can talk about that or anything else you want to chat me up about. That's This Is Hell Office Hours every Wednesday evening beginning at 6 at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. And the first person who asks me for a copy of Flint Taylor's The Torture Machine, Racism and Police Violence in Chicago, I will give you an autographed copy. And for the first person who asks me for a copy of a book that we discussed today, London's American Breakdown, Our Ailing Nation, My Body's Revolt, and The 19th Century Woman Who Brought Me Back to Life. First person who asks, asks me for that book, I will give you a copy of that book as well. So thank you so much to everybody for listening. That's always disturbing. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you during this week's set of shows, and that's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms toward the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, This is hell. My demon is on my butt. No. Ah. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>